Welcome to Waterstone Community Church. In this series, we are delving into the second half of the Gospel of Mark. We will study how Jesus challenges others' expectations of who the Messiah ought to be. As he goes on to be crucified and vanquished death, we will discuss what he taught his disciples along the way. Waterstone is located off of C-470 in Bowles in Littleton, Colorado. Our weekly services are held on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Learn more about us at waterstonechurch.org. A reading from Mark, chapter 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look! The fig tree you cursed has withered. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just want to invite you to be in our midst this morning as we open up the scriptures, as we wrestle with what they mean and what they mean to our lives. We pray your spirit would give us insight, that he would uh, touch our minds, our hearts, and our wills, so that as we leave here t today, we're, we're more passionate about you and understand who you are and what you desire from us and for us. Um, we ask that that would happen this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the greatest uh, sermons in history was written and preached in 1738 by a man named Jonathan Edwards. Some people considered him the greatest American theologian. Uh, the title of the sermon was The Excellencies of Christ. 
And just side note for you, it took him over two hours to preach the sermon. You thought I preached long. I do, but not that long. <laughs> um, Edwards became fascinated by a verse in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, actually two verses 5 and 6, and this image that he encountered here. You remember from our study in the book of Revelation that John has seen these scrolls, and the scrolls represent the purposes of God in history, and there's nobody who's able to open up the scrolls, unseal them. So he begins to weep. Um, so one of the elders said to me, to John, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. It's a really strange image. On the one hand, Jesus is the lion of Judah. On the other hand, he's, he's the lamb of God. And those seem almost paradoxical. Uh, Edwards preaches this about this text. He says, the lion excels in strength and in the majesty of his appearance and voice. The lamb excels in meekness and patience, his sacrifice for food and clothing. But we see that, in, that Christ is in the text compared to both because the diverse excellencies of both, wonderf both wonderfully meet in him. There is in Jesus Christ a conjunction of such really diverse excellencies as otherwise would have seemed to us utterly incompatible in the same subject. So different, and yet they go together. John Piper writes this about this issue. Jesus is the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God. He was lion-hearted and lamb-like strong and meek, tough and tender, aggressive and responsive, bold and broken-hearted. It's interesting when you think of uh, Jesus as the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah, we really like this notion that he's, he's the Lamb of God, right? A, a, a lamb is gentle, a lamb gives you sustenance. Uh, we use them for meat and for, for wool and for milk. Uh, a lamb is cuddly and soft. I mean, who wouldn't like a lamb? We like Jesus as a lamb. I'm not so sure we like Jesus as a lion. A lion is not very cuddly. A lion is powerful and strong and courageous and forceful and bold. And a lion roars. And a lion at times is angry and at times violent. We're not so sure about Jesus as a lion. In the passage we're going to look at this morning, we see both Jesus as a lamb and Jesus as a lion. And we have to embrace both. Mark, the book we've been looking at, has been wrestling with this question, who is Jesus? And in chapter 8, we get an answer to that from the lips of Peter Jesus asked Peter, who, who, who do you say I am? And Peter gets it right. He says, you're the Christ, the Messiah. Christ simply means the anointed one. Messiah equivalent means the anointed one. It indicates God's chosen king. They were anointed with oil. That's who Jesus is. But the question then becomes, what kind of Messiah is he? And Mark is beginning to continue to explore that the answer to that question. What kind of Messiah, what kind of king is this Jesus? Now there are two notes that are important 
to be aware of as we approach this, this, this chapter. The first is that Jesus is going public and, and becoming militant. All the times in the past when he healed somebody, made the lame walk or the blind see, or he casted out a demon, he would tell them, be quiet. Don't tell anybody. And part of that is I, I think Jesus is trying to control his exposure so things don't kind of snowball out of control. But that's no longer true. I mean, now Jesus is going to throw a parade that announces that he's king, and then he's going to march into the temple and clean it up. And the parade is going to make the Romans mad at him, and the cleaning of the temple is going to make the religious authorities mad at him. And uh, everything is beginning to, to roll now towards the cross and the crucifixion. In fact, Mark eleven eighteen says this, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, what he had done in terms of the temple and the parade and began looking for a way to kill him for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Things are moving towards the cross. Um, not only is Jesus going public and militant, but, but second thing to note is nothing in this whole passage happens by mistake. None of it. All this is orchestrated. They're going to go and find a donkey, and we don't know whether that was prearranged or miraculous, but it happens by intent. Don't think for a moment that Jesus ended up on the cross unintentionally. This was not a mistake. It was by intent, and he is moving things along that trajectory, so that's where things will end. All right? With those things too in mind, let's, let's look at Jesus in this text as he's presented as a lamb. 11, uh, verse 1 through 7. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter, you will find a colt tied there, one which has never been read, ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord needs it and it will send it back here shortly. It's like all this is prearranged. They're going to find a colt. The colt is tied up, which is an image that harkens back to the Old Testament. And this colt has never been ridden. Now, Mark just calls it a colt. But in the other Gospels, and by the way, this triumphal entry is the only event in the life of Jesus that is in all four Gospels. So we get a little different take in the other Gospels. But one of the things we find out, cult is an undescript word. But if you go to one of the other Gospels, we're told that it's actually a foal of a donkey, a, a baby donkey. He's arranged to have this baby donkey. They, they bring Jesus the baby donkey. They, they lie a a cloak over his back, and Jesus climbs on. You can kind of picture it in your mind. I, I'm wondering if he had trouble staying on this, this little baby donkey. And he starts to ride it from the Mount of Olives down into the Kindron Valley, and it's really steep, and you can kind of see the, the donkey, you know, rocking back and forth, and Jesus trying to stay on. And then they head up uh, towards Jerusalem, because you have to go down in the valley, then up towards Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. And when that happens, the crowd just goes nuts, because they have incredibly high expectations. Let me tell you why. number of things. At this moment in Palestine, the Romans were oppressing the country, and their goal was to pillage and to use the resources to the greatest extent possible. Some historians tell us that uh, taxes, Roman taxes at this moment were, were 40 percent 
So you would pay with money. If you couldn't pay with money, you would pay with goods. If you couldn't pay with goods, you would have to give up your land. So we have a lot of people disenfranchised who have become landless because of the Roman oppression. And the Jews are powerless. They're not allowed to have any political leader at this point. Um, they are allowed to have a high priest. But even that, the Romans have taken the, the gowns of the high priest, um, the ceremonial robes, and they have locked them up and will only allow the high priest to have them at certain times in the year because they're concerned that the high priest is one of those people who could initiate uh, a rebellion. So they've locked them up. They can only use them on certain holy days. Along with that, the Romans have built a, a fortress. It's called the Fortress of Antonio. It, it, was Antonia. It, it was named after Marcus Anthony, and it's built on the northwest corner of the temple. And it's huge, and it houses about 600 Roman soldiers. It has four towers, 14 stories high. They look down on the court of the Gentiles. They look down on the temple. They're there just to make sure nothing happens. It's Passover, and at Passover, thousands of people would come in to Jerusalem. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people. In fact, some historians estimate that at points, 2.5 million pilgrims would make their way towards Jerusalem during the Passover. So it is utter chaos. And a few days before this, Jesus had been in Bethany, and his friend Lazarus had died. And Jesus has raised him from the dead. Now, it's one thing to heal the sick. It's another thing to make the lame walk or the blind see. But if you start raising people from the dead, <laughs> people are going to take note. <laughs> so there's this buzz about Jesus. So when he starts coming in on this little donkey, man, the place explodes. They just go wild. They go nuts because they think this is the coming Messiah. This is the king. And to a degree, they're right. I mean, before this, in the previous chapter, you remember that Mark had this blind man call Jesus the son of David, which is a messianic title. This is the coming king. Their hopes are going to be realized. And notice how they respond. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna. Now they'd put their cloaks down because that's what you did for an incoming king. And they'd grab branches and palm branches and lay them down, kind of like laying out the red carpet for the king who was coming in. And they would shout this word, Hosanna. Hosanna was a statement of praise, but it literally meant rescue us or save us. This is all messianic imagery, kingly imagery, because they thought Jesus was the guy. He was the guy. In fact, they begin to quote from Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Another hint that he's the Messiah. And then they get more explicit. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That's who this guy is. Coming king. He's going to throw out the Romans. Insurrection's going to start. Uh, the time is here. It's arrived. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Expectations quickly dashed <laughs> because they throw this huge parade and nothing happens 
So at that point, you have to begin asking the question, what's, what's really going on here? Then the other Gospels, it's a little more explicit to understand what's happening because they actually go back to Zechariah, a prophecy in the Old Testament that gives us a bit of background on what's taken place. Mark hits at it because of Jesus coming on the colt, but here it's explicit. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your com- king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is coming as the Messiah, but the Messiah is not coming as they expected. They were hoping for a guy on a war horse, and they get a guy riding a donkey. They were expecting a guy who would initiate insurrection with the Romans, but they get a guy who's going to initiate peace, and the way he's going to do it is by sacrificing himself on a cross. Remember, in the chapter before this, we were told that the Son of Man did not come to serve, uh, to be served, but to serve by becoming a ransom for many. He is the Messiah, but not the kind of Messiah they expected. He is going to bring the kingdom, but not the kind of kingdom they were hoping for. His goal is much bigger than what's happening at that moment to the Jewish people under the oppression of the Romans. He is doing something big. He's going to bring peace for all nations. But they don't get it. Especially even the disciples who have been walking with Jesus and and under his ministry for the last three years don't get it. In fact, John chapter 12, verse 16, this is in John's description of the triumphal entry. He makes this editorial comment. He says, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and, and that these things had been done to him. Their expectations had blinded them to the reality of what was taking place before them. And when Jesus arrives, he gets in the city of Jerusalem. He does something very strange. You would expect that if he's the coming Messiah and they were expecting him to throw out the Romans, the place that he would go would be to the fortress of Antonia, to the barracks, the heart of the Roman garrison, the enemy that was oppressing him. That's where he should go. That's where the the resurrection, the insurrection should start. But notice he doesn't do that. In fact, in verse 11, we're told Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went to the temple courts. And this is bizarre. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Uh, It's kind of like he shows up at the greatest religious institution they have, the temple. He observes what's going on, takes a few notes, and walks away. And everybody's left kind of scratching their head. Well, that's Jesus as a lamb coming gently coming as a sacrifice. Jesus, the Lamb of God. Now we get to see him as lion. This morning, verse uh, 
12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say, And you look at this and you go, What the heck? What? This is really bothersome. I mean, Jesus comes off kind of childish and, you know, bad-tempered. It's like he got up on the wrong side of the bed. And, and what's he doing? Who, who would curse a tree? Why would anybody do that? And especially, okay, it doesn't have fruit, but it's not in season for fruit. What is going on here? Well, a couple things will help us. Middle Eastern fig trees actually produce two fruits. One they produce in the spring. So in the spring, their leaves originally come out, and they produce these little nodules. And you, they're, they're not producing figs yet. It's not the season for figs, but they do produce these nodules. And you can go and you can collect these little nodules, and they're sweet and they're good to eat. And evidently, Jesus sees this fig tree. It's in leaf. He goes up to get some of these nodules, and as he investigates it, it, it has no fruit. Now, if you're a fig tree and your leaves are out and you have no fruit, if you're not producing these little nodules, something is wrong. Something's off. So what Jesus decides to do is to use this fig tree as an object lesson for his disciples. Uh, um, remember, he had gone to the temple and he had taken notes. And at the temple, he, had saw, saw, he, he saw lots of religious activity. There was lots of leaves. Lots of things going on. Lots of chaos happening. A vibrant place. But evidently there was no fruit. And he's going to use this tree as an object lesson. Now Jesus does this often. He'll use a physical object lesson to portray a spiritual reality. We saw him do this with the blind man back in chapter 8 who's healed in two stages. And then again Bartimaeus, the blind man, uh, is at the end of that section. And oftentimes when he does this, when he's using a physical object lesson to teach a spiritual truth, the thing he's teaching about is in the middle and the object lesson ends up kind of sandwiching uh, that truth. And that's happened here. He talks and curses the fig tree and then after he clears the temple he comes back to the fig tree and will discover that it's, it, it, it's withered. He's teaching his disciples that the temple is fruitless and will face God's judgment just like this fruit tree. Well that helps a little bit. But then he goes to the temple. On reaching Jerusalem Jesus entered the temple courts and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. This is Jesus as the lion. I mean this is violent and he is angry and he, he, he is not just excusing them to get out. He's basically overturning tables of the money changers and the benches of selling doves and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. This is Jesus as the lion. He's ticked off and he's doing something about it. He's roaring. He's roaring. And as he taught them, he said, it's not written my house will be, is it not written my house will be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. We read that text and we think that what Jesus is going after here is either one of two things. Either that he's upset that they're using sacred space to buy and sell, or he's upset because they're commercializing religion. 
And maybe you could argue that, but I don't think that's really what's happening here. I think there's something much deeper going on. Let me, let me suggest to you why. First of all, the law said that if you were a Jewish male, you had to pay a tax to the temple, half a shekel, to redeem your soul or to redeem yourself. The problem was you, you could not use a Greek coinage or Roman coinage uh, because those coins would have images on them of the Caesars or the rulers or their gods. And thus, if you use them to pay the half shekel, that would be blasphemous. Couldn't do it. So what you had to do is you had to take your Greek and Roman currency and exchange it for temple currency to pay the shekel. So this whole idea of being a money changer was very legitimate. It had to be done in order for you to be able to worship and fulfill your responsibilities to the temple. Not only that, uh, this is Passover, and at Passover you had to offer a lamb, but a lamb that was unblemished. Now remember, people are coming from great distances. Now sometimes I suppose a person would grab an unblemished lamb from their flock and make their way to Jerusalem, but the chances of your lamb being hurt or eaten or somehow becoming blemished or wounded were high. I mean, you're traveling a long ways, and when you offered the lamb, it had to be unblemished. So it made a lot more sense. Instead of bringing your own lamb just to go to the temple and buy one of their unblemished lambs, one of their unblemished sacrifices. Um, that made a lot more sense. So that's very legit. All these transactions, the selling of sacrifices, whether it's a dove, a lamb, or a bull, and the exchange of money, all had to take place for the temple to function. So the problem is not that they're doing those activities. The problem is where they're doing those activities. That's all happening in the court of the Gentiles. There's a picture here. This is the, the fortress over here, uh, Antonia. It has four pillars, 14 stories high. It's the Roman guard. This is the court of the Gentiles. You see, the temple was to be a symbol of God's presence in the world. And the mission for the Jewish nation and in a sense, the mission of the temple was to be a light to the Gentiles. They were to encourage Gentiles to come and worship. They couldn't go into the inner courts, but they could come into this outer court. They could pray. They could listen. They could learn. They could worship. That was the mission, to reach the world. But they had forgotten the mission. And they decided, you know, if we do that, then you have to put the money exchangers and the people selling sacrifices on the outside of the temple. And that's kind of inconvenient. It's a lot more convenient if we bring them inside, right? Uh, because then the chief priest can make a little money off the deal, control what's going on. Nobody has to, to go far to offer the sacrifices or get the money exchanged. It just worked a lot better. And besides that, they didn't care about the Gentiles anyway because the Gentiles were the Romans who were oppressing them. So this was a good deal. But it's not what God intended. They have distorted God's mission. Uh, look, you, you can see this in the passage. When Jesus sits down then and teaches, it says, as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Even the temple wasn't just about the Jewish nation. The Jews had been blessed in order to be a blessing. 
It was about reaching the world. You say, well, wait a second, Nick. Notice the end. But you have made it a den of robbers. If it's a den of robbers, then it has to be about commercial transactions. Well, the Greek word here for robber is the, the word leistes. Leistes. Um, it's an interesting word. Half the time it is translated as thief or robber, and half the time it's translated as revolutionary. The word literally means violent one. Violent one. And I think a better translation here would be, you have made my house a den of revolutionaries. There was an ultra-Orthodox party known as the Zealots who wanted to violently overthrow the Romans. They could care less about the Gentiles. Their whole religion was about them and their tribe. They had forgotten that God was about something bigger than just themselves. And if you... Don't allow the court of the Gentiles to be a place to reach out and you just use it for yourself. You're off mission. Now that begins to make sense. Because he is saying that fig tree, it had great leaves. It's like all the religious activity taking place in the temple. But it had no fruit. You're not reaching the Gentiles. You've distorted the mission of God. And then notice what happens when they leave. When the evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city in the morning. As they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And all of this is somewhat prophetic of what's going to happen. Right? In 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. And uh, this is a precursor to that. And in fact, when Jesus in the temple stops all the activity, all the merchandise, he's stopping the whole sacrificial system for a moment. And that's just a, a precursor to what's going to happen because Jesus is going to be sacrificed. And once he's sacrificed, there's no reason for any more sacrifices at all for the temple. Its purpose is served, and that's what's coming. So let's put it all together. The point is really simple. Jesus is a king, is the king, a lamb who comes gently to bring universal shalom or universal peace, utopia, and a lion who comes forcefully to bring judgment on those who distort God's mission. Great. What's that mean? I mean, what can we learn? Let me give you three things I think we should learn from this. The first is pretty obvious. Jesus is king. And that means he's sovereign. That means he's in control of all of life. That means there is nothing that happens in life that doesn't happen at his discretion. You see this in the story. I mean, Jesus has orchestrated everything. His uh, eventual death is, is not by mistake. He, God's king. He's in control of everything. Now, that does not mean that everything happens for a reason. Rather, it means that God gives reason to everything that happens. Let me say it a different way. That means that everything that happens doesn't happen for God's purpose, but God gives his purpose to everything that happens. You see, we, we live in a fallen world, and in a fallen world, bad things just happen because it's a fallen world. And, and those bad things, when they happen, aren't orchestrated to happen by God saying, oh, I'm doing this so I can teach you this lesson. 
But that bad thing may happen just because you're in a fallen world and God may use that then to transform you. Everything doesn't happen for a reason, but God gives reason to everything that happens because he's sovereignly in control. And if Jesus is king, then that means he has the right and the desire for us to give him complete and total allegiance. Jesus wants to be king over every aspect of our lives. Kind of see this at the beginning of the story when everybody's ripping off their clothes and laying it down and putting the branches there. They're marking him as king. They're giving up their resources. Everything is to serve him. And that's what Jesus wants in every aspect of our life. He doesn't want to be an add-on to your life. He wants to be the controlling center of your life. It's not okay with him for you to give him control and allegiance in one dimension of your life, but to wall off other dimensions of your life. He wants it all. He wants your allegiance and how you think and what you say and how you act. He, he wants to be king over your professional life. He wants to be king over your, your sexuality. He wants to be king over your finances. He wants to be king in your family. He wants to be king in every detail of life because he deserves to be. That's who he is. He's king of all. And not only does he want to be king over everything, he wants to be king all the time. It's interesting in the story that people get it. When he comes into the city, they recognize him as king and everybody's shouting Hosanna. They're letting, giving, them, giving him their allegiance. The problem is just a few days later, instead of shouting Hosanna, they're shouting crucify him. It's just a temporary thing. They're, they're fickle. God does not want us to be fickle. He wants our allegiance every moment of our lives. Not simply when it's easy to give him our allegiance, but he wants our allegiance even when the pressure's on and it would be easy not to give him our allegiance. When you're at work and you're a salesman and the pressure is on to meet the quotas and your boss is suggesting that you just lie a bit about the product because if you do, you'll make greater sales, that's when he wants your allegiance. He wants your allegiance when it's tax time and you got to report your income and you know you can get away with sheltering or hiding a little bit of it and yeah, you know, it's not legal, but no one will ever know. And if you do that, you're going to get, well, you're going to have to pay a lot less and the pressure's on. Will he be king then? The pressure's on when you're in one of those conversations and Jesus comes to be the topic and the pressure is on to be politically correct and you want to keep your mouth shut rather than speak up for him, what will you do? Will he be king then? He wants our allegiance all the time. You see, in the end, it really is an issue of timing. I mean, whether we make him king now or we make him king later, the reality is at some point we will make him king. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So Jesus is king. Second thing we learn is that his mission is the world. <laughs> Jesus is cosmic. He wants to reach all the nations. And he's irritated that the Jewish nation has said, no, we don't want to do that. He wants to reach out to every tribe, 
every tongue, every people group, every nation. Because that's his agenda to reach the world. It was not just about the Jewish nation and their tribe. It was about the whole world, everyone. Now here's the thing. If that is Jesus' mission and he's our king, then that has to become our mission. We got to be about reaching the world. We got to be about reaching the nations. Larry was telling me that uh, a few weeks ago we were having a funeral here and he was in the building and somebody came in and saw our mission areas and, and saw that we do a lot in terms of reaching out to the Muslim population. And he asked Larry, do you guys have a mosque here? <laughs> and Larry said, no, we don't have a mosque here. He says, well, why are you doing all this outreach to, to Muslims? And Larry said, because we love Muslims. They're on God's heart. We want to reach them. We, uh, that's part of the mission. You know, I've had people actually leave Waterstone because we have made a focus in our missions program to reach Muslims. Why do we do that? Because God loves Muslim, Muslims and they need Jesus. And if he loves them, we need to love them. It's part of the mission. We can't distort it just to protect our own interests and protect our own tribe. We have a calling that's much bigger than that. The problem is it's easy for us to get off mission. It's interesting, um, Jesse, who's in charge of outreach, was uh, sharing with staff uh, our plans to start Alpha right after Easter. Alpha is a program to reach those who are kind of exploring Christianity and exploring Jesus. And he was giving us some statistics about people sharing their faith. And one of the things he said is that of those who are believers, 45% of them have never shared their faith with another person. Folks, that's no fruit. We have to be sharing the reality of Jesus with others. That's part of our calling. Our calling is to see God's kingdom. And his kingdom means people seeing him as king. It's very easy, easy for us to take our eyes off the bigger picture, the cosmic mission of Christ, and simply turn them inward. We, we, we then kind of think uh, Jesus is all about us, meeting our needs, making us happy, giving us the abundant life. He, he, he becomes very therapeutic. We want his forgiveness, and we want his comfort, and we want his gentleness, and we want him as a lamb. <laughs> And we forget that the lamb is still cosmic. Um, you know, sometimes you can look at a ministry or a person or even yourselves and you can see all kinds of leaves. You can look at a church and see all kinds of religious activity going on, all kinds of singing, all kinds of uh, talking, all kinds of buzz, all kinds of activity. And then when you begin to explore it a little closer, more closely, you see there's not much fruit. There's really not people coming to know Jesus. They're really not pursuing God's justice. They really don't give a rip about the poor or the oppressed or the marginalized or the immigrant 
uh, they've taken the faith and just made it about them and their tribe and they're playing it safe. And sometimes that's true when you look at a person from a distance. The leaves look great. They look awesome. But then when you begin to explore the fruit, you discover there's not much there. They're, They're just good at being religious. They talk a good game, but they're really not doing much for the kingdom. The call for us is to be on mission, and the mission is the world. And we can't be satisfied with simply making ourselves and our tribe safe. You know, when a tragedy happens in our world, in the States, we get all concerned, and we should. But it should bother us that when there's a tragedy and happening in Syria, and refugees are dying and, and drowning and being mistreated, if we're really citizens of heaven, that should grip our hearts just as deeply. Because the mission is the world. It's not just about us and our tribe. Last thing, not only is Jesus king and his mission is the world, and here it's a little scary when you're considering that Jesus is not only the lamb but the lion, he will hold his people accountable to his kingdom mission. I think God disciplines his people when they get off mission, when they're not about what he's about, when they're fruitless. Folks, that's a dangerous position to be in. I think sometimes we need to do a little fruit inspection. I think we need to do that as a church. I think we need to do that as individuals. What kind of impact are we having for the kingdom? In us, is it transforming us? In others, are we neighboring so that the kingdom comes to them and they get to meet the reality of who Jesus is? Is it global? Are we making any fruit beyond ourselves in terms of the global mission of the kingdom of God? I mean, he wants to bring shalom to the world. I mean, mean, that's why Waterstone is involved at so many different levels. I mean, we want to share the gospel and we want people's lives transformed, but we want to see the city transformed. We want to see Muslims come to Christ. We want to see people in Central Asia come to Jesus. It's not just about us. It's about us being part of this, this movement. And you know what's exciting? Jesus calls us to live large to live big, to be part of this huge story. But too often we, because we're selfish, decide to live small and make it just about us. And we miss out. We miss out on the big thing that God's doing. And we face God's discipline. Scary. So let me leave you with these questions. First, is Jesus your king? Is he your king? Second, are you living on mission? Are you seeking the kingdom? No, really, are you seeking the kingdom, his justice and his righteousness and his reality? And are we making the up there come down here? 
And do we see Jesus as both lion and lamb? Let's pray. Father, help us. Um, help us to make and keep Jesus as our king. And help us to live that out in a way that produces fruit. Father, both as a church, I pray that for Waterstone and I pray it for our people and I pray it for myself. Lord, let us be people who are on mission for the kingdom because our allegiance is to Jesus Christ, our King. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit waterstonechurch.org. Our weekend services are on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thanks for listening.